Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of the Unfounded Podcast. Today we're talking about all things sustainable fashion and I had the privilege of talking to Timo Rizanen who is a professor at UTS. The rundown of this episode is super super simple because the questions that I had were very very basic. I started off with asking him what fast fashion is, then I moved on towards asking him what slow fashion is, and finally we end the podcast on the feasibility of moving towards slow fashion. It was so so interesting to hear Timo talk about it and I'm really excited as usual for you guys to listen to this podcast. Hello Timo, thank you so much for joining us today. Um I'm really excited to talk to you about and hear your insights on fast fashion, slow fashion and kind of like the sustainability that we might be able to achieve hopefully at some point. You are an associate professor at the School of Design at UTS. That's correct. And thank you for having me. It's really really great to speak. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um it it is a long time in the making, so I'm really glad we had this opportunity. <laughs> um I think the first question that I kind of wanted to better understand is what fast fashion actually is. Um there has been a lot of conversation, I think not only just through social media but also with my friends and stuff. We do try to be a bit more aware of fast fashion lately. Um but I'd love to understand what your take on it is. Yeah, so it's a uh, the way I see it it's a particular business model that emerged um in the 1990s but really sort of um came into um sort of full fruition right at the turn of the century, turn of the millennium and um and it you know it's a business model that has sort of uh instead of having two seasons a year or at the most four seasons a year, you know, you might have um drops every well it used to be every sort of 3 4 weeks um now i i think 20 years later we you know some brands have weekly weekly injections of new things and actually with the with the the sort of the most recent sort of generation of fast fashion brands i mean i don't, like i remember being on shein's website a few months ago and they had 70,000 options for dresses and like wow. I, yeah. I, I, so i i don't know like the, what the like what a fashion season for something like that anymore is it's just all around just pumping out new products yeah. it's so interesting you you call it like a business model because i don't think like it makes sense but i don't think i've ever heard it as just being explicitly like admitted as that and yeah i was going to um when i was talking to like my friends when we were researching this i was going to talk about this it's a very silly example actually there's this new shiny looking fabric i don't know what it's called um and at first when i started seeing it i was indifferent i was like yeah okay but eventually it was just put in front of me so many times like i'm like okay now i just need to see it i need to have it <laughs> it needs to happen so i feel like it does make sense that it's just been marketed as such at enough times that people are just consuming at all times eventually yeah and and um it's been interesting to sort of look at the i mean also horrifying but interesting to look at the the kind of the evolution of the fashion system um because you know one of the first sort of like the first generation fast fashion brands H&M um they've actually been around since i think 1947 as a company um i don't think they became no, like the name H&M came later um through a couple couple of mergers and whatever but you know i'm old enough to remember H&M from the 80s um i was born in the 70s grew up through the 80s in in scandinavia and i remember going to h&m with my grandmother and you know this is back in the 80s we used to go there for good quality long lasting clothes that weren't cheap 
Um, yeah. So the, the H&M that I remember from my childhood is very different from the H&M now. But then again, even in the sort of fast fashion space, H&M is one of the most expensive brands now, like compared to the Boohoo's and, and Shein and, and um, is fashion Nova still around, I think? Yes, um, I think um, so. Yeah. But yeah, so those, I mean, I don't think there's anything above 20 bucks on Shein's website, which is a kind of, like, Brilliant. it's terrifying for someone who knows what goes into making fabrics and what goes into making garments, because you have to, you have to cause quite a lot of destruction to get things that cheap. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, but yeah, so it, it's been a sort of initially, I think, a slow evolution, which then accelerated like from the from 2000 onwards. Um, uh, you, you know, the, the fashion system has accelerated. And, and it's quite interesting if you look at the growth of fashion production globally and the growth of human population up until about 2000, there was some correlation in those rates of growth. And at around 2000, the rate of fashion production, it becomes faster than the rate of population growth. So the two are no, haven't been connected for about two decades now. So, um, and, and I say that because even four years ago, the uh, global fashion agenda, which puts on the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, which is regarded as the sort of the premier event for fashion and sustainability globally. And, and actually H&M is one of the the funders of that event, um, they said in the 2017 Pulse report that that because human population grows, clothing production must grow. But they didn't acknowledge the fact that the two haven't been connected for two decades. Like yeah. we are producing way more clothing than anyone needs, um, and we are burning, like literally incinerating and landfilling um, brand new garments, unworn garments, in the hundreds of millions a year. So. Um, it's a system that has no future in, in its current form. Like there's, there is no future for this kind of thing. And, you know, one of the figures that I've seen is an average American buys 68 garments per year. Yeah. There is nothing like, there is literally nothing to make that ever sustainable. There, there, there are no, there is not enough circular strategies in not enough fair trade manufacturing, like none of that. Uh, we should do all of those things, but but that level of consumption will not be um, tenable if we are to sort of st to keep economic activity within planetary boundaries and um, and within you know safe sort of operating space within the biosphere. Um, there, yeah. there, it's just not biologically or physically possible. <laughs> I just maybe this sounds a bit naive, but you know you mentioned that like tons of clothes are being just incinerated without being worn. How does that fit into this business model of wanting consumers to purchase more if so much is being wasted at the same time? Um, well, the waste, the, 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 the kind of business model requires that kind of waste because so much of, of the business model is, is built on speculation. And, um, and you know, there, there's a lot of speculation on trends and, um, and, and the trends are manufactured too, um, you know, and, and, and have been for several decades. I mean, I... As a fashion student in the in the nineties, I learned about the sort of forecasting um, that happened. That there are different publications for that make forecasts for two or three year, years in advance. Um, but um, but also the you know back in the nineties, it was still like we had four seasons a year, whereas now it's just much much faster. But but the the waste is actually built into the the business model um, and. And for the most part, the 
the, the companies can wear a degree of waste. And even, you know, sort of traditional fashion brands um, that are not sort of in the fast fashion space. Uh, when I lived in New York, I had a friend who worked at a very well-known American brand that I will not name. Um, but they had 10% wastage um, uh, built into their budget. So they just knew that 10% of, you know, the stock that was in the store would never get sold, that they would just send it to landfill or to incineration and um and it was just factored into the budget and so a lot of material waste is is built in i also remember speaking with a brand another very well-known american brand they incinerated um uh, thousands of miles of fabric every year thousands of miles thousands of miles um and and um and it's those kinds of things when you start to sort of see um you, you start to get a sense of the kind of the completely overheated economic system that has no future in its current form and um and that's why uh, that's why i think it's important to think of uh, to talk about it as a business model because still a lot of the 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 sort of the dominant discourse is trying to put all of the emphasis or all of the responsibility on on human beings on on individuals um, you know, shop differently and and will and shop better and all of that. And you know, yeah. of course, we should do that. But but also, the businesses should start making a lot less. And there are actually businesses that I don't think should exist. I'm I'm getting more and more blunt as I get older. <laughs> I actually am just like I would say the fossil fuel industry should not exist, and we need to do everything we can to shut it down as quickly as possible. There are certain types of fashion businesses that I think should not exist. I'm not going to say any brands right now, but it's yeah. probably pretty clear by the end of this conversation, <laughs> some of those brands, um, you know, and, and particularly some of the brands that have emerged in the sort of last five to 10 years. Someone like H&M, like, even though I have a lot of beef with them, given that they've been around for almost 80 years and, and they've evolved and gone through various metamorphoses over those 80 years, I would actually love to see them metamorphose into something smaller and something slower and something quieter um, in coming years. Um, they might have a different idea. They, they have argued in the past that they need to keep growing in order to afford sustainability, which is one of the most insane things I've ever heard. But, um, but because the actual, you know, the idea of perpetual growth, um, both of business, but also the economic system is not compatible with sustainability. It's, and, and there have been many studies uh, by economists who've, who've demonstrated that to be the case, that, that we can't keep growing, um, yeah. that there are actual physical limits to growth. Um, and, um, but yeah, so um, it, it's been interesting to, to sort of see the evolution, but, but we are sort of at the, if you imagine the sort of the, the growth chart, like we need to be seeing ourselves being at the plateau at the top or at the summit and and start to look at like what is the downward slope going to be like because it's going to be you know it's very easy for me as an academic to talk about things like degrowth and post growth and and all of that i know that none of that is easy and it has all kinds of implications uh, it has implications for employment it has implications for um how we actually live um how we create satisfaction in our life, how we create fulfillment in our lives when so much of our fulfillment uh, in a 
country like Australia, for example, is directly tied to consumption. But it's important to remember too that it is not the only way to live, and it's actually a very recent thing. Like humans haven't lived like this for most of humanity's history, and and even right now there are many cultures around the world where humans do not live like this. So um, I do think that countries like Australia, the United States, where I lived for a decade, and also Finland, part of the EU where I'm from, have the greatest responsibility in reducing consumption um, because we are the greatest consumers of, of um, resources uh, globally and, um, and also the greatest source of, um, of uh, climate impacts. Um, and so um, we do have a greater responsibility than most of the rest of the world in, in that sense. There have been a lot of discussions then towards this move um, in the move towards slow fashion to kind of like compensate for what we've done so far. You were talking about before how there are a lot of definitions for what slow fashion is. And I'd like to hear what they are and if that's kind of like a feasible thing to move towards. Yeah, so that... It, 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 it's great how you bring it up. Um, so, you know, different, uh, different cultures and different languages treat ideas differently and they have different ideas about well-being and fulfillment and so forth. Um, but coming back to the, the, the idea of slow fashion, you know, I, first I will say that I'm speaking in a sort of an Australian context and also, um, you know, having lived in the States for 10 years, that has also shaped my my view. Um, but I see slow as a kind of very deliberate um, other way to this um, sort of mass consumption way of living um, where we simply consume a lot less, we consume more thoughtfully, we consume uh, with care. And, you know, that word care, I think, is one of the most beautiful words in the English language that we just don't kind of treat with care, <laughs> if you will. And, um, you know, garments have, clothes have these things that we call care labels in them, but like, like, what if we actually started to care for clothes um, and care about clothes and care about fashion? Um, because ultimately I think fashion can be this amazing thing that, that brings good employment to people, not the kind of employment that kills people in factories, which has been happening for more than a century that we know of, um, but with some horrific recent examples like Rana Plaza in 2013, um, but also many other incidents. Um, but yes, yeah, so, um, you know, in an Australian context, I think slowness really means buying a lot less and, and, um, and, and really buying for, um, you know, a, a meaningful life because I, I would encourage anyone who is sort of shopping on a weekly basis or even on a monthly basis for new stuff, uh, be it clothes, in some cases, be it cars or houses or new appliances, because it's all kind of part of the, I mean, like when you look into kitchen appliances, for example, and the turnover of stuff in the, an average kitchen, it's horrifying. Um, and that, that actually accelerated during the lockdown. So people just want like variety, like oh, I'm bored with this now. And, um, and I, I, I do think that we need to start asking deeper questions about, you know, why are we so reliant on, on just buying new things um, in order to feel, uh, feel fulfilled in life? 
And um, I was part of a, a, pro a research project led by Kate Fletcher, who's at London College of Fashion. And Kate Fletcher is, I would say, um, well, not I would say, she's actually the most cited scholar on fashion and sustainability and, and has been working in the space for about 30 years and um, has written several books on the topic. And one of the books is called um, Craft of Use, uh, Post-Growth Fashion. And, and that came out of a project called Local Wisdom, uh, which really looked at how people get fulfillment out of clothes in ways that are sort of decoupled or, or separate from constant shopping. And, um, and I led the project for New York. It, it occurred in various parts of the world, including in Melbourne and Australia. So RMIT um, in Melbourne led it for, for Australia. And basically people were just invited to bring in garments that, you know, ha fulfilled one of the many, many criteria on this list. Things like garments that have been in the same family for several generations, garments that are shared between uh, multiple users, um, garments that have been repaired, garments that have never been washed, which may sound disgusting, but actually, um, and, and of course they were all outer garments, like anything that's against the skin will need to get washed because if you don't wash it, it will rot. And before it rots, you'll probably want to throw it up because it will smell really bad. Um, um, but things like jumpers and coats that aren't against the skin, like there are other layers between the skin and the garment, they don't actually need a lot of clo uh, cleaning. Uh, if you you know you can spot clean and things like that, and the, the part of the the rationale for that criteria is that when you look at the whole life cycle of a garment, um, sometimes washing is actually the most um, has the most environmental impact because of of the energy consumption and water consumption and so forth. But anyway. Um, the stories that the, there's several hundred stories that are on the project website and it's localwisdom.info. But then Kate Fletcher wrote a book about the findings of the project, which is that book, um, Craft of Use. And it's, it's, it's about five years old now, but it's, it's such a beautiful book on, on how it's possible to live a really great life, really, not just a kind of a survivalist life, but actually a really rich fulfilling life with these clothes that uh, live with us and and um, and really live richly lives alongside us with us um, and and for me that that project and that book it presents a actually a view of a future it doesn't have to be the only future but it's certainly one very kind of viable future and I also would say just on that point we should not talk about a singular future because um, you know, my idea of a future might not be somebody else's idea of a future and, and ideas of futures are also culturally specific. So I think it's always important to talk about futures in the plural. But, um, but nonetheless, I think Craft of Use for me presents a really hopeful kind of um, an optimistic view, view of other ways of being that's no longer tied to mass consumption and this very rapid and very large scale consumption of clothing and other things. And, um, and so, so yeah, slowness for me is, is also about being resourceful and, and, um, and creative. Um, you know, when you think of creativity, I think sometimes too narrowly as, you know, being artistic and, and, and so forth. But I think creativity can also be about being sort of delightfully resourceful with things. Um, so things like, 
you know, there, there's some amazing people like Celia Pym and, and Tom of Holland who repair clothes really beautifully. But often the repairs are visible and, um, and you know, they change the aesthetic of the garment and, and the, the repair sort of becomes part of the, the visual language of the garment, but they do it so artfully and so beautifully. So if you look up Tom of Holland, and uh, he's Dutch, but based in the UK, and also Celia Pym, who's a British artist, but works a lot with repair and garments. Um, you know, there, there's so much that we can learn, and, and not just learn, but actually do. Like anybody can fairly easily learn to repair garments, and, um, and I, I've been trying to do that um, myself for about 15 years now, where I, I repair things rather than get rid of them. And, um, and it's, it's been interesting because I remember 10 years ago doing a repair project with my students when I was in New York at Parsons and one of my students who was from India, he said, you know, this is all very nice, but in my country, if you do this, like it just signifies that you're poor. And, um, whereas in New York, it, was, it would signify like you're cool and you're from Brooklyn. Um, and, and it was so, it was so good for me as a teacher to just like be reminded that, yeah, like this, what we're doing, there's, there's a certain degree of privilege in it. And also, you know, different cultures will have different understandings of it. And so that, that also goes to my point that like when I speak, I speak from a, a particular Australian context and, and I don't in any way intend that what I speak about is necessarily universally kind of valid, um, it's it's valid maybe from my perspective, but it might not even be valid from somebody else's perspective in Australia. So, um, yeah. I'm, Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just trying to with age. I'm trying to be more, more and more cautious about the kind of claim, like the the extent of the claims that I make yeah. <laughs> and their validity. That it's actually it's so like nice to that you're like reiterating that because I feel like that's also definitely something that I need to consider. Um, that every time we come up with a solution, it's not going to be feasible in every single context, no matter yeah. how much we would like it to be. But I was just going to say, like, everything you kind of said was just such so much more of a beautiful alternative than what I was thinking about initially coming into this conversation. I study psychology um, and oh. we kind of went through like the nudging theory. And I was like working on something today about that as well. And that's kind of just like more or less forcing or nudging people into making these decisions um like the sustainable or the slow fashion decisions and so initially when you were talking I was like yeah maybe like if we get brands to just make less then automatically people will be forced to kind of buy less sorry that's a very um basic description of it but that was kind of what I was thinking but the way you're describing it is so much more just I guess satisfactory it seems like it would give the person so much more joy than what I was thinking of. Um, and that's really great to know that there those alternatives exist rather than just making people do things, making them fall in love with their clothes so they want to do those things. Yeah, look, I, I think, and psychology is, is so important in all of this. Um, and I think fashion should work with psychology a lot more and not from a kind of a cynical, like how to sell more stuff perspective, because that's generally how it's, fashion has engaged with psychology. Yeah. throughout time but um because I, I do like like ultimately like what i would love to see is a is a society where people are fulfilled but also that we're living in ways that are compatible with with the limits of the planet 
and uh, and currently we're not and um and you know i i said earlier that you know i would like the primary responsibility to be on on businesses uh, and less so in, in individuals but um the one thing that i would recommend and this is terrifying to some people but i i did it and i survived and um uh is to try a kind of i think it's called um clothing detox or fashion detox or whatever where you go for a period of time without shopping for any new things um i did a year this was um in 2010 i did a year of not shopping for any new clothes and i found the year so easy that i went for a second year so for two years i didn't buy any new clothes now what needs to be acknowledged is i had a lot of clothes to begin with and um and and also, I was already in my mid-30s by then, so I get that for for teenagers and people in their early 20s in particular, but not limited to those age groups either. Like, there are, certain, like, also depending on which, like, which field you work in, there's different reasons that different people also have a lot of peer pressure on the kind of um, constantly looking or having a new outfit. And, of course, social media has made that worse um, because you are not supposed to post the same outfit like if you're especially if you're an influencer like you're not supposed to be ever seen twice in the same thing um which is also an insanity that we need to actually just end yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um but but yeah i think um uh, what i loved about the no shopping for two years is it forced me to engage with what i had in a different way and um and that was the greatest learning for me because i i end up actually getting rid of a lot of my clothes um um and um i was really delighted by the end of the two years to be able to buy some new pants because pants were starting to be thin around the seat area <laughs> and i was a bit nervous about um I, at times exposing myself by accident um by things just a long time it, look, I think it is, and I think now, like, 10 years later, it would be even more radical, given how much faster the system has gotten. And, and I have thought about doing it again. Um, and, um, but, but the other, like, the other thing that I think is worth mentioning, a, a former colleague, Otto von Busch, who's Swedish, but based in New York, he did this project probably about 15 years ago where... Um, he was accepting, so he asked people to bring him garments that they wanted to get rid of. So something that you would just either throw out or maybe at best take to a charity shop. Yeah. But, but as he accepted the garments back, he had people fill out this form that asked a number of things about the garment, like where, you, where did you buy it? How long ago did you buy it? Uh, tell me about the kinds of instances or occasions where you've worn it like and who were you with when you wore it blah 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 all these kinds of questions about the life of the garment and what happened a lot of the time is that once people had filled out the form they didn't want to give the garment anymore they wanted to take it back oh. <laughs> and, and and it just kind of speaks to like how also um um like we don't give it a lot of thought a lot of the time. And I'm not saying that we should be thinking about our clothes all of the time. Like there's a lot of other better things to be thinking about in a sort of course of a day. But but nonetheless, I think like if you don't even know what's in your closet, it might be time to do a bit of an inventory and a reflection on your 
lifestyle and um and and we i think we've all been there like i mean we all find things in our closets like oh what's yeah. that <laughs> and um and actually i i wore a jacket last week with still the tag on it <laughs> it was on the inside so it wasn't visible but um but i i didn't see it until i took it off that yeah. evening it's like oh my god that's so embarrassing um it was the first time that i'd worn it and um and I actually bought it for an event in August, which of course then didn't happen because of lockdown. And um, and we finally were able to have an event last week, and um, and I wore it to that event, and, and then got home that night. It's like, oh, the tag is still here. And the other thing, um, on an individual level, that some of you might be aware of, there's a campaign that's been going for close to a decade now, called Thirty Wears, and um, Livia Firth, um, who's an activist, sort of in the sort of sustainable fashion space. Um, she was one of the first proponents of it, but just this idea that, you know, you should try and wear everything that you own at least 30 times, um, which in some cases might not be, like with some garments is not, you know, we all have those things that we wear at home all the time, but for some other things, it can be difficult. There's a, an activist and a writer in the UK, actually she would probably want me to refer to her as a writer, not an activist. Um, uh, her name is Aja Barber, and she's just written a book called Consumed. But she she does a lot of public speaking and a lot of public appearances, and and um, it was only about two weeks ago. But she wore the same outfit to two different events in the same week, and and she said she found it daunting because there is this expectation when people post you on Instagram and 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 whatever. There's this expectation that you appear in a different outfit on different days of the week. But she did it. And you know everybody survived, <laughs> and, yeah. um, and everybody she, lived to tell the tale. Yeah, and she wasn't cancelled, and um, yeah. and so I think you know I'm optimistic. Like there are like people sort of creatively asking these questions about how how we might start to move forward, and um, but yeah, there, there are definitely people like Aja Barber and Livia First that I would encourage people to look up and and see what they're up to because they're. They're also using social media really creatively to, to sort of engage audiences with these ideas. I think also in terms of like creatively using social media, there was this thing I saw about um, digital fashion. And so like because it's only we can only be seen once you just buy the clothes and you kind of get photoshopped into it kind of thing. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, um, mixed um, <laughs> yeah. in that, uh, like with any technology, like a technology is only as good as as we choose to use it like technologies can be used for good and they can be used for evil and um and you know um and i see the same with digital fashion because the worst of it that can happen is that it can sort of accelerate and just sort of perpetuate these fast cycles of consumption especially if there's a kind of a physical um sort of parallel to the sort of um, the, the sort of end, endless disposability in the digital space. And also, I mean, it has to be acknowledged that with NFTs and, and, and the sort of digital space, like there's, um, there's a huge impact from the energy consumption of, of that space. But then on the plus side, you know, digital fashion is here to stay. And there are, there are a lot of good things that I think these sort of emerging and many are already established technologies can 
make available. So, for example, trying things on and and um, especially if you can try things on with things that you already own, I think is fantastic because you can you can start to see if, if a new purchase will fit with the things in your life that you already own because, um, you know, if, so, if you buy a new thing and it's more likely to go with things that you already own, you'll probably get those 30 wears out of it. Um, and, um, and also I think things like body scanning combined with digital pattern, pattern cutting technologies and so forth, like... Uh, in the near future, and there are already some brands doing this. Even here in Sydney, um, there's a brand called Daniel Avakian who are doing uh, sort of digital fitting rooms and, and custom made based on based on digital technologies like body scanning. Um, you know, we can start to offer better fit, um, and um, and hopefully with that, then better satisfaction, which hopefully then also leads to um, longer longer use lives of garment. Of course. We can't assume that all of those things will happen because yeah. if the if the dominant system is still pushing for one wear on Instagram and then it's out, like it doesn't matter if the thing doesn't fit because you can just pull it to make it look good on Instagram and then yeah. Uh, yeah. throw it out. So I would never, I, I would always be cautious with any kind of simplistic assumptions about like one thing will kind of solve everything because we have to deal with the underlying economic logic and the underlying kind of cultural logic of of like disposability is seen as a good thing today. I mean, I'm drinking from a disposable cup, even though my reusable cup is there. It's just I was coming from a meeting and I didn't have come back time to come back to my office to get yeah. the. It's the kind of convenience of it, isn't it? That's not always accessible. So it's, that is now so accessible to us. We consider uh, convenience a kind of a human right in places like Australia. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Because I remember, especially growing up, my parents used to always tell me about how they only got clothes twice a year. Like it was a big thing to get new clothes. And I'd just be like, well, yeah, but we don't have to do that anymore. And it's the yeah. fact that it's it shouldn't be about, well, we don't have to do it anymore. Like we should be doing it because it has so many more positive um, consequences than just, yes. well, I don't have to because I'm more privileged than you are. Yeah, and... <laughs> And um, and we have to frame it as not as one of kind of um, scarcity and and um, sacrifice, I think. Yeah. And that's where, you know, the project from Kate Fletcher, I think, is so optimistic because, you know, when you read through the stories of the people in there, and I mean, I'm in there as well. Like I, I was also, as, as well as a research administrator, I was also a research participant. Because I, I talked about this cardigan that I've had for um, um, now for 30 years, actually. And I've repaired it. And, and it was secondhand when I got it. So it's not, it wasn't even new. Um, but, but it also connects me to my uncle who passed away. It was presumably his cardigan. I don't know that 400% sure. But I, my grandmother gave it to me after he passed. And I always always assumed that it was his. And... Um, and so there's a kind of a, that kind of fam family connection as well. But, but so I, I think it's important because our parent generation often talks from a kind of a scarcity perspective, like yeah. that's all we had. <laughs> At least that's how my parents spoke to me because they were sort of the post-war generation in Europe and everything was scarce. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, we can live lives of abundance, but abundance doesn't have to be tied to this endless cycle of consumption. Like, abundance can have other kinds of expressions. And I do think that we can live a life of abundance that is not about just having a ton of stuff. 
um, and and having a ton of constant new stuff either. I think the, the kind of last thing that I want to get at is in terms of like the feasibility then, who would who would be addressing these things, right? Because it's on one end, we're talking about like the people who are producing these clothes, but on the other end, we're talking about how people respond. And it's where would you kind of like begin to gauge the feasibility of this when there are so many stakeholders in play? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and my answer is completely unsatisfactory. I'm going to say everyone, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I'll, um, I'll put some uh, qualifiers on that. So I do think that brands have a, an immense responsibility in the space. Um, and, and there's still a lot of greenwashing in the space. Like I, I remember it was this year, I'm just trying to remember when it was this year, but um, I think it was sort of in, in our autumn, in the Australian autumn, but Primark, you know, well-known sort of fast fashion brand in Europe, um, they launched this, I think it was called Primark Cares campaign. And, um, and they had, uh, I think, at least one celebrity, maybe more celebrities, to sort of, prom you know, promote Primark as this brand that is about sustainability, is about social justice, is about caring. Yeah. And literally two weeks later, after that campaign ran, um, they ran a social media campaign, primarily on Twitter, I think, that said, uh, normalize going to Primark for one pair of socks and coming out with six bags full or something like that. I can't remember the exact wording, <laughs> but it was basically just about like, like buy as much stuff as you can, as quickly as you can. And it's like, like, how does this fit with your thing two weeks ago? Like, like, yeah. do you think we can't remember that campaign from two weeks ago? And, and I think they actually do assume that people just don't like, yeah. like if one thing doesn't work, <laughs> then it's another yeah. thing. Right? And, yeah. and so, and, but they got they got called for it immediately, and oh, um, okay. and um, and I think they had to delete delete some tweets. But so I think brands have a big part. But then you know, as individuals, and I by the way, I don't use the word consumer because I think it's I actually find the word offensive. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like I, I think when we are seen as consumers, we are seen as these entities whose primary agency in the world is to make shopping decisions. And I would yeah. like to think that we're a lot more than that. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's a, that the reductionist sort of nature of it is, is the offensive part of it. And, and because we're much more than that, we're so creative, we're imaginative, like, and we can live these fulfilling lives um, without just constantly shopping for things. But I do think that, you know, do, you know, don't, I would say to everyone, don't spend a whole lot of time feeling guilty, except maybe if you're an influencer that promotes this kind of wear once culture, then you should probably feel a little bit guilty. Um, but um, for most of us, because most of us are not influencers, um, um, and there are also, by the way, good influencers out there, so not all influencers are bad. Um, but most of us, I think, you know, start with what works for you. Uh, if my one year or two year no shopping thing is too daunting, start with three months and see how you go. And also, by the way, you can stop at any time. And, yeah. um, it, you know, but, but then I would also encourage if you do fail at first, then try again. Um, having quit cigarettes like about a million times before I actually did quit them. Um, you know, the trick is to, to just do it. Um, and I apologize for that computer sound. I thought I had turned everything off. Um, <laughs> managed to not 
turn that one off. Um, yeah, to, you know, try try what works for you and then try it again and then try and grow from there. But also just keep asking deeper questions about like satisfaction as it relates to clothes. Like, like if you are someone who is constantly shopping for new things, like what is that about? And, um, and also just start educating yourself. There are really great books out there. I think Barber's Consumed is really great. Elizabeth Klein's um, books, um, the names of which I can't remember right now. Um, uh, God, this is embarrassing because uh, Elizabeth Klein, she wrote one of the first sort of consumer-facing books, and there I go using the word consumer. Um, <laughs> because people like me and Kate Fletcher, like we, we're academics and we primarily write for an academic audience. Um, yeah. But there are fantastic authors like Elizabeth Klein and Naja Barber and others who've written books that are sort of directed at the everyday person. Uh, with really great tips about how to start to shift things and without guilt because I've learned over the years that guilt just doesn't... When we are sort of dwelling in guilt, like, there's very little opening for action and um, and so I would encourage people not to spend too long feeling guilty about things. Um, but, yeah, I I think... And also accounting for things like, you know, your geographic location because... What works in Sydney will not work in Helsinki, where I'm from. Um, there's just different needs from a climate perspective. Um, and also, you know, cultural perspectives as well. I've Over the years, I've had lots of students from China, for example, and, and it's been really interesting to talk about secondhand clothing uh, with people from China. And, and even within China, there's lots of different ideas about secondhand. But, but there are, you know, some cultural cl- groups within China for whom secondhand clothing is a kind of it's almost taboo and um uh, or it's not taboo like it's it's not considered appropriate i had a student uh, three years ago who did a really wonderful project around and a chinese student who did a really wonderful project around sort of investigating the the different cultural ideas within her culture around secondhand and um and it was enlightening for me as well as a teacher but so yeah um starting where you're at and then constantly sort of building from there. I do think that collectively we can figure this out. We just don't have a lot of time to do that. We have yeah, like yeah. a decade at best and probably not that. I think though what you said was oddly reassuring because initially it felt like we have to rely on brands to kind of lead us in the right direction. But now it feels like if we develop the right kind of relationship with our clothes and if we ask the right kind of questions to ourselves about why we like certain clothes, then we can develop that slow fashion for ourselves on a much more intimate and personal level. And my initial and much more pessimistic mindset, I would say, seems wonderfully challenged, which is really great as well. And one last question, which is definitely nowhere near as serious as the conversations we've had thus far, which is that what are your thoughts on having less clothing but then a few more accessories to make sure that the clothes look different each time. Because I feel like that would be enough for me. As long as I can make them look different each time, I could live with that. I, I think that's a great strategy. I mean, there's great examples of that. I think, um, you know, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, um, Audrey Hepburn mostly wears the same black dress throughout the film. And it started, she, I think she has like a couple of other outfits in the film. I, I haven't watched it. This is really problematic film for other reasons. 
um, but um, like quite racist. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, but um, but just focusing on the black dress that she wears throughout the film, it's styled in a, with a number of different accessories throughout the film, and yeah. um, and there were a couple of projects. Um, there was a, an artist in Seattle, uh, Alex Martin. She did this project called the Brown Dress Project about 15 years ago. We, um, when I wrote the book with Alison Gwilt, um, Shaping Sustainable Fashion, we wrote about that project in the book where she wore the same brown dress for a year. Um, she actually made two identical dresses, but um, in the end she ended up wearing just one of them. And, um, and, and yeah, just wore it with different things, uh, including some of them she would layer it with t-shirts and things as well. Yeah. And then there was a project in New York about five years later called the Uniform Project where, um, and I forget the woman's name, it'll come to me after this call. Um, uh, it's just I never knew her as well as I knew Alex. Because um, I had a direct connection with Alex but I didn't, uh, didn't with the woman in New York. Um, but she wore this black dress, and I forget also the name of the brand that made the dress. <laughs> Terrible. Um, but anyway, she wore the same black dress for a year and, again, styled it differently every day with different accessories. And, and kind of, I can't remember if she documented on... It might have even been before Instagram. So I can't remember if it was on Twitter or where she posted. Maybe it was on a blog back when blogs were the thing. <laughs> and, um, yeah. but, um, but nonetheless, like, there are existing examples of people doing that, and I, I think that's a great approach. Um, and um, to make, um, it also makes financial sense. Um, and, um, and, and I think it's also, um, yeah, I, I think the more we can be stylists, like our own stylists, the better. Um, because that's an also, I see it as an act of creativity and um, that anybody can engage with and, um, and, and it's a fairly low risk um, way to do it because if, if something doesn't work, like you, you sort of learn that fairly quickly. And by the way, we all should be like, you know, my industry fashion is very good at telling people what they should wear and what they shouldn't wear. And, and if your thighs are the wrong shape or the size and, and, and whatever, don't listen to any of it. <laughs> don't, like, you should be, you know, the ultimate judge of, of what works for you. And, um, and yeah, because I, I, I've been asked over the years, you know, to, to be judgmental about things and I the older I get the less so I used to be very judgmental when I was young but um I also just think like I, I think you know ultimately we we know best the thing that we see in the mirror and yeah. and there is more than what's just in the mirror there's the inner in, in inner workings as well that that nobody else knows as well as you so um that you know these things have to fit with our lives the clothes that we wear have to fit not just with the lives that we live but also the the person that we are and and nobody can tell you <laughs> better than yourself what that fit what for what fits best and um you know if if reading fashion magazines is helpful as a kind of a creative prompt then great but don't ever let fashion media make you feel bad about yourself ever <laughs> 
That is an amazing, amazing note to end on, I think. Just being your own stylist and not being too concerned about what you're being told to choose. Um, Thank you so, so much for coming on. It was like, it was so, so interesting to just hear you talk about everything that you know. Um, And I'm so glad that we managed to have this interview as well. Um, Yeah. It was just three or four months. (laughs) But it it was so, so, so worth it. So that's the episode, guys. I'm really glad that I started off with a fundamental question like what is fast fashion? Because I never expected the answer to be it's a business model. I'm also really, really glad that the way that I thought slow fashion would have to be enforced is not the only way. There's a lot more of a beautiful and soulful way that slow fashion can be enforced. And I'm really, really excited by that fact. That was one of my favorite interviews that I've done for Unfounded so far. And I really, really hope that you guys enjoyed the podcast. Make sure to follow us on your podcast listening app and on Instagram. And I will see you guys next time. Bye.